Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week 26, Numbers chapters 21, 22, 23, and 24. Well, we spent all last week on a very small but difficult section of the Bible about the bronze serpent on the pole. Now, I'm not going to review it with you tonight because it's, it's quite complex. And if you missed it or you want to go over it again, I recommend you get the CD or just review it on our Torah class website. Now, this week's going to be quite different. We're going to do more reading on one large block in a little while than we've maybe ever done. Um, this is because the story we're going to explore is important and has a lot of theological implications. It covers three full chapters, and I don't like breaking it up because we can lose the continuity. Now, the entire serpent and pole story covers only six verses in Numbers chapter 21, and it essentially interrupts the travel log of Israel as they leave Mount Hor to march by way of the Sea of Suf to the south in order to avoid conflict with the inhabitants of Edom. And as a reminder to you, this was some terribly difficult, dry, torturous territory they were traversing, and the weary Hebrews uh, grumbled about this decision to go around Edom which is what then led to this divine plague of snake bites, and then, of course, that strange cure by viewing the serpent on the pole. Now, verse 10 picks back up on their progress that's now gaining momentum as they move towards their destination. And you know, 40 years of time in the Bible doesn't sound like much, but 40 years is a pretty long time. And after a 40-year journey, it must have been easy for these refugees to forget that their original goal was a place called Canaan. They had been judged many times by God now, and countless thousands had been killed as a result. They had been attacked by several nations, some of whom merely feared their approach, others simply for the sake of plunder. Their staple diet almost this entire time was manna. And they're getting a little tired of it. Simply obtaining water had become an act of faith. And it was quite a chore. All the challenges of life, all the bumps in the road of family disagreements, fractures in relationships that were also part of their lives. Don't think that marriage, divorce, death, illness, injury, and disputes with neighbors stopped during this 40-year period. It certainly did not. There's an old saying, you know, that Floridians are particularly familiar with. I think that pretty well expresses the, the Israel's mindset right about now. When you're up to your rear end in alligators, it's easy to forget the original idea was to drain the swamp. Well, that's about where they were. Now, by now, there's been an almost complete turnover of the Hebrew population as led by Moses. The makeup of Israel in no way 
now resembled that horde of city dwellers that lived along the Nile and who had fled Pharaoh almost 40 years earlier. Most of those over the age of 20 when they left Egypt were now dead and buried out in the desert sands. Actually, their death was a precondition the Lord had set for Israel entering the promised land due to the Israelites' refusal to go forth and take the land some years earlier. Remember, as a result of that spies, 12 spies incident. The majority population of Israel was now made up, think about this, of those who had never lived in Egypt. They had never even lived in a town or a village because they were born out in the wilderness in a tent during this arduous journey. The, The majority of Israel really only knew the lifestyle of a Bedouin. They lived as nomads. That's all they knew. Please keep this in mind as we move forward in the story of the conquest of the land of Canaan. This is very pertinent. Let's reread Numbers 21.10 to the end of the chapter. Turn your Bibles to Numbers 21. We're going to read from from verse 10 to the end of the chapter. Page 173 if you have the complete Jewish Bible. The people of Israel traveled on and camped at Avot. From Avot they traveled and camped at Ayyehava-Arim in the desert fronting Moab on the east. And from there they traveled and camped in the Wadi Sered. From there they traveled and camped on the other side of the Arnon in the desert. This river comes out of the territory of the Amorites. And the Arnon is the boundary between Moab and the Amorites. And this is why it says in the book of the wars of Adonai... Yahav at Sufa, the wadis of Arnon, and the slope of the wadis extending as far as the site of Ar, which lies next to the territory of Moab. Now from there they went on to Be'er, that is the well about which Adonai said to Moses, assemble the people and I'll give them water. And then Israel sang this song, spring up, O well, sing to the well sunk by the princes, dug by the people's leaders with the scepter, with their staffs. And from the desert they went to Matanah, and from Matanah to Nachat-Liel, and from Nachat-Liel to Bamot, and from Bamot to the valley by the plain of Moab at the start of the Pisgah range where it overlooks the desert. Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, with this message, let me pass through your land. We won't turn aside into the fields or the vineyards. We won't drink any water from the wells. We will go along the king's highway till we've left your territory. But Sehon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. Instead, Sehon mustered all of his people, went out into the desert to fight Israel. On reaching Yahatz, he fought Israel. Israel defeated him by force of arms and took control of his land from the Arnon to the Yabok River. But only as far as the people of Ammon. Because territory of the people of Ammon was well defended. Now Israel took all of these cities. Israel lived in all the cities of the Amorites. In Heshbon, all its surrounding towns. Now Heshbon was the city of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and had conquered all of his land up to the Arnon. 
This is why the storytellers say, Come to Heshbon, let it be rebuilt, let Sihon City be restored. For fire burst out from Heshbon, a flame from the city of Sihon. It consumed Ar of Moab, the lords of Arnon's high places. Oh, woe to you, Moab. You are destroyed, people of Chemosh. He let his sons be fugitives, his daughters captives of Sihon, king of the Amorites. We shot them down. Heshbon's destroyed. All the way to Devon. We even laid waste to Nofach, which extends as far as Megvah. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. And Moses sent men to reconnoiter Yatser. They captured its towns, drove out the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up along the road to Bashan and Og, the king of Bashan, marched out against them, he with all of his people, to fight at Edrei. Adonai said to Moses, Don't be afraid of him. I've handed him over to you, with all of his people in his land. You will treat him just as you did Sichon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they struck him down, with all of his sons, all of his people, until there was no one left alive. Then they took control of his land. Now we're going to move through this pretty rapidly so as not to get bogged down. There's a lot to cover tonight. Basically this story picks up as the Israelites enter an area that is often called the Transjordan. Trans. Across. Jordan. The Jordan. So that means over here. It was really only known by that name, Transjordan, during the 20th century. The territory is more known as the modern-day Hashemite kingdom of Jordan today. Well, we will get somewhat of a recount of all this once we get to Deuteronomy, which offers some additional details. But the idea is that Israel tried quite hard to avoid conflicts with peoples that had some distant connection with Abraham. People like the Moabites and the Ammonites, who were originally descended from Abraham's nephew, Lot. So we find Israel staying to the outer edges of the territory of uh, Moab. All right, and all, here's Moab here, and trying to stay kind of out this way. Here's that river, Arnon. Okay. But you know, stirring up a problem, which was try, what they were trying to avoid, just couldn't be avoided. Um, there were just too many Israelites for the local residents to ignore their presence. Their presence. I mean, and to the residents of these established territories and city-states of the Middle East, these three million Hebrews were little different to them than a lord, a, a horde of locusts descending upon them. Well, verse thirteen finds Israel now quite far north and well to the west. Um, of the Dead Sea. And the Ornon represents the, uh, the southern boundary of Moab. And understand that just like in our day, geographic anomalies like rivers and mountain ranges, these things tend to be points of demarcation where one nation stopped, another nation began. But also understand that some territories tended to be politically stable and others didn't. The land of Canaan at this time was somewhat stable. 
The rulers of the area of Moab constantly seemed to be changing and therefore their boundaries moved around a little bit. Now this tended to make some areas easier to conquer than others. Areas that were stable tended to have some number of large walled cities. Areas that were constantly changing hands tended to consist primarily of unprotected villages. And this is because it took years, a lot of organization, and sizable resources to build a strategically defensible city wall. Therefore, we find Israel willingly going to battle against the king of the Amorites, a fellow named Sihon, and summarily dispatching them. Now, the Israelites didn't intend on battling the Amorites. They, they preferred to simply pass through their territory to cross the Jordan and enter Canaan. So, as with the earlier story of the Israelites' encounter with Edom, Moses sends an emissary to King Sihon and asks per- permission to pass with a promise not to make war, not to disturb the Amorites' field crops, not to take water from their wells, and by the way... The agreement not to take water from the wells is not to be taken quite the way you might think. The key word is take. There was no way Israel could avoid using the water from the wells owned by the Amorites. It's just that Moses was promising not to essentially steal the water. But but they wouldn't take it by force or deception. Rather, Israel would openly tap those wells and then justly compensate the king for whatever water they used. This is just the way of the various desert cultures of that era. But like with Edom, the king of the Amorites, Sahon, says, no, you can't pass through. So Israel doesn't hesitate. They're not about to try to find another way around this land to get to, the, to, get to Canaan. They're starting to feel their oats. And they know they're getting close to that final destination, Canaan. So they have plenty of incentive to place their lives on the line and go to battle. The result was that Israel essentially conquered the heart of the Transjordan region. It was a wonderful land that was fertile and aesthetically pleasing to look at. Israel killed many Amorites, took their towns and villages, and moved in. Heshbon was King Sihon's capital city. And Israel took that as well. Now, it's important here to understand a couple of things that's going to matter quite a bit when studying later books of the Old Testament, such as the book of Judges. First is that the Amorites were not indigenous to the Transjordan. Their homeland was Mesopotamia. And they came down from up north and essentially took over the area where Moses and Israel were journeying through. Second is that they conquered Moab. More specifically, what they really did was that they established a king-vassal relationship with Moab, such that Moab bowed down to Sihon, king of the Amorites. Thus, Moab belonged to the Amorites, and no longer was it an independent sovereign nation. We also find that while the nation of Ammon 
lay to the north and east of Moab, it too was affected by the presence of the Amorites. Some number of the Ammonite population had created villages outside of Ammon proper in an area near to the Jordan River. Thus, when Moses and Israel defeated the king, Sihon, of the Amorites, standard protocol of the day meant that whatever and whoever King Sihon controlled was now transferred to Israel. Bottom line, even though Israel won Moab's territory, it was actually more properly seen as being one from the Amorites who were governing over Moab at this time. Which is not the same thing as Israel conquering Moab. And we encounter that technicality, by the way, particularly in the book of Judges. And if you've been studying Sunday morning with me, you know we've been talking about that. Now, a good analogy would be, to what I'm talking about, that if some foreign power attacked and conquered the USA, the people of the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico would also come under the control of that conqueror, even though realistically the conqueror probably never attacked and conquered Puerto Rico itself. Same idea. Now I think I can say with certainty that up to this point, there has been no real thought by Israel of occupying land to the east of the Jordan River. That land was not Canaan. It had never been Canaan. And what God had promised to Abraham was Canaan. Since up to now, the land promised to the Hebrews had only been identified as Canaan, meaning to the Israelites, the land on the west side of the Jordan River, the West Bank, this land on the east seemed like an unexpected bonus. But because Sehon of the Amorites forced the issue and he attacked Israel, Israel suddenly found itself as holders of a lot of territory on the east side of the Jordan. Now later on in Numbers, we're going to read of the historical dividing up of territory, tribe by tribe, with Moses overseeing the tribal territorial allotments. And we're going to find that two Israelite tribes and about half of another are given territory right where we find the Israelites in Numbers chapter 21. Notice that verse 25 explains not that Israel simply took all of these towns in the Transjordan, but they settled in them. They made them home. And can you blame them? Can you imagine How good that must have looked to those Hebrews who were children or teens when Israel fled Egypt. It's no wonder that about a quarter of those road-weary Israelites decided not to continue on anymore. Not to move on into the Promised Land, but to remain on the land to the east side of the Jordan River. Land that Israel had conquered with relative ease from the Amorites because the enemy's numbers were relatively small and their villages were mostly unwalled, unprotected. Well, next Israel moved on a little farther towards a place called Bashan. 
up here to the north. See here, here we have the uh, Sea of Galilee, Kingdom of Bashan, Kingdom of Og, King Og up here. And of course, Bashan hoped to avoid what had happened to their neighbors. Apparently, before deciding whether to take on Bashan, Moses consulted with Jehovah and God told Moses, go ahead and conquer him. That in fact, the Lord had already decided the outcome and handed them over to him. The territory of Bashan extended all the way north to Mount Hermon. East to the king's highway, west to the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and south to a line a little bit below the Jabok River. Now remember, by the way, the Jabok or the Yabok was that place where about five centuries earlier Jacob had reconciled with his twin brother Esau. So they'd been there before. So before the Israelites even entered Canaan, which was their destination, they had already acquired a large area of land over here and settled in it. So I would say that the current regime controlling the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan today would be quite wise to try and make peace with Israel because the Israelites occupied it long before the Ishmaelite Arabs ever did. And the Bible says that the Lord sees that land now as belonging to Israel as well. And when we look at later Bible passages, we find that what was promised to Abraham as a promised land actually expands in Ezekiel to include the Transjordan. Now, one can stand at the crossroads, by the way, near Jericho. Coming down from the hills of Jerusalem where the road to Qumran and Masada intersects, and you can actually look across this northern end of the Dead Sea and see the land on the east side of the Jordan that Israel conquered. And it's also generally the area where Israel would actually eventually cross over to get into Canaan. Well, let's move on now to Numbers chapter 22 and the famous biblical story of Balaam and Balak. The story of Balaam and Balak is quite long. Three chapters. And in order that we get the best overall picture of what occurs here, we're going to read it in the way it was originally written. Because it wasn't written in chapters. It was written as a whole. And that's how we're going to read it. So we're going to read tonight, starting right now, Numbers chapters 22, 23, and 24, so settle in. Numbers chapter 22. Then the people of Israel traveled on and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan River, opposite of Jericho. Now, Bilak the son of Zippor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. Moab was very afraid of the people because there were so many of them. Moab was overcome with dread because of the people of Israel. So Moab said to the leaders of Midian, This horde will lick up everything around us the way an ox licks up the grass in the field. Balak the son of Zippor was king of Moab at this time. So he sent messengers to Bilam the son of Bor at Tor by the Euphrates River in his native land to tell him, Listen, 
A people has come out of Egypt, spread all over this land, and settled down next to me. Therefore, please come and curse this people for me, because they're stronger than I am. Maybe I will be able to strike them down and drive them out of the land, for I know that whomever you bless is in fact blessed, and whomever you curse is in fact cursed. The leaders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them payment for divining. And they came to Bilam and spoke to him the words of Balak. And he said to them, Well, stay here tonight, and I will bring you back whatever answer Adonai tells me. So the princess of Moab stayed with Bilam. Well, God came to Bilam and said, Who are these men with you? And Bilam said to God, Balak, the son of Sippor, king of Moab, has sent me this message. The people who have come out of Egypt have spread all over the land. Now come and curse them for me. Maybe I'll be able to fight against them and drive them out. Well, God answered Bilam, you're not to go with them. You are not to curse this people because they're blessed. Bilam got up in the morning. He said to the princes of Bilak, well, return to your land because Adonai refuses to give me permission to go with you. The princes of Moab got up, returned to Balak and said, well, Balaam refuses to come with us. Balak again sent princes, more of them, higher status than the first group. They went to Balaam and said, said to him, here is what Balak, the son of Zippor, says. Please, don't let anything keep you from coming to me. Look, I'll reward you very well. Whatever you say to me, I'll do. So please come and curse this people for me. And Balaam answered the servants of Balak. Even if Balak were to give me his palace filled up with silver and gold, I can't go beyond the word of Adonai, my God, to do anything great or small. Now please, you two stay here tonight so that I may find out what else Adonai will say to me. Well, God came to Balaam during the night and said to him, If the men have come to summon you, get up and go with them, but do only what I tell you. Well, Balaam got up the next morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger flared up because he went. And the angel of Adonai stationed himself on the path to Bar's way. He was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of Adonai standing on the road, drawn sword in hand. So the donkey turned off the road into a field, and Bilaam had to beat that donkey to get it back on the road. Then the angel of Adonai stood on the road where it became narrow as it passed among the vineyards and had stone walls on both sides. And the donkey saw the angel of Adonai and he pushed up against the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against the wall. So he beat it again. And the angel of Adonai moved ahead and stood in a place so tight that there was no room to turn either right or left. And again the donkey saw the angel of Adonai and lay down under Balaam, which made him so angry that he hit the donkey with a stick, but Adonai enabled the donkey to speak. And it said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, it's because you've been making a fool out of me. And you know, I wish I had a sword in my hand. I'd kill you on the spot. And the donkey said to Balaam, I'm your donkey, right? You've ridden me all of your life, Right? Have I ever treated you like this before? No, he admitted. Then Adonai opened Bilam's eyes so that he could see the angel of Adonai standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand and he bowed his head and he fell on his face. 
the angel of Adonai said to him, Why did you hit your donkey three times like that? I've come out here to bar your way because you're rushing to oppose me. The donkey saw me and turned aside these three times and indeed, if she hadn't turned away from me, I would have killed you by now and saved it alive. And Bilaam said to the angel of Adonai, I have sinned. I didn't know that you were standing on the road to block me. Now therefore, if what I'm doing displeases you, I'll go back. But the angel of Adonai said to Bilaam, No, go on with the men, but you're to say only what I tell you to say. So Bilaam went along with the princes of Balak. Well, when Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him in the city of Moab at the Arnon border in the farthest reaches of the territory. And Balak said to Balaam, you know, I sent more than once to summon you. Why didn't you come to me? Didn't, didn't you think I could pay you enough? And Balaam replied to Balak, here, I've come to you, but, but I have no power of my own to say anything. The word that God puts in my mouth is what I'm going to say. Well, Bilam went with Balak, and when they arrived at Kiryat Hutzot, Balak sacrificed cattle and sheep. Then he sent to Bilam and the princes with him. And in the morning, Balak took Balak and brought him up to the high places of Baal. And from there, he could see a portion of the people. Chapter 23. Bilam said to Balak, Well, build me seven altars here, and prepare me seven bulls and rams here. And Balak did as Balaam said. Then Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand by your burnt offering while I go off. Maybe Adonai will come and meet me. And whatever he shows me, I'll tell you. Well, he went off to a bare hill. And God met Balaam who said to him, I prepared the seven offered, seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Adonai put a word in Balaam's mouth and he said, Now go on back to Balak and speak as I tell you. Well, he went back to him and there, standing by his burnt offering, he with all the princes of Moab, he made his pronouncement. Balak, the king of Moab, brings me from a ram from the eastern hills, saying, Come, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How am I to curse those whom God hasn't cursed? How am I to denounce those whom Adonai has not denounced? From the top of the rocks I can see them. From the hills I can behold them. Yes, a people that dwell alone and do not think of itself as one of the nations. Who has counted the dust of Jacob or numbered the ashes of Israel? May I die as the righteous die. May my end be like theirs. And Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? To curse my enemies is why I brought you in here. You've totally blessed them. And he answered, Mustn't I take care to say just what Adonai puts in my mouth? And Balak said to him, All right, come with me to another place where you can see them. You will only see some of them, not all, but you can curse them for me from there. Well, he took him through the field of Sophim to the top of the Pisgah range, built seven altars, offered a bull and a ram on each altar, and Bilam said to Balak, Stand here by your burnt offering while I go over there for a meeting. Well, Adonai met Bilam and put a word in his mouth and said, Go back to Balak and speak as I tell you. 
Well, he came back to him and he stood by his bread offering with all the princes of Moab. And Balak asked him, well, what did God say? Then Balaam made his pronouncement. Get up, Balak, and listen. Turn your ears to me, son of Sippor. God's not a human who lies. He's not a mortal who changes his mind. When he says something, he will do it. When he makes a promise, he will fulfill it. Look, I'm ordered to bless. When he blesses, I can't reverse it. No one has seen guilt in Jacob or perceived perversity in Israel. I deny their God is with them and is acclaimed as king among them. God who brought them out of Egypt, who gives them the strength of a wild ox. Thus one can't put a spell on Jacob. No magical work against Israel. It can now be said of Jacob and Israel, what is this that God has done? Oh, here is a people rising up like a lion. It's like a lion he rears himself up. He will not lie down until he eats up the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Well, Balak said to Balaam, obviously you're not going to curse them. But at least don't bless them. However, Balaam answered Balak, didn't I warn you I must do everything Adonai says? Well, Balak said to Balaam, come, I will now take you to another place. Maybe it'll please God for you to curse them for me from there. And Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, overlooking the desert. And Balaam said to Balak, Okay, build me seven altars here, prepare me seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam said and offered a bull and a ram on every altar. First, uh, chapter 24. Well, when Balaam saw that it pleased Adonai to bless Israel, he didn't go, as the other times, to make use of divination. But instead, he looked out towards the desert. And Balaam raised his eyes, and he saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he made his pronouncement. This is the speech of Balaam, son of Beor, the speech of a man whose eyes have been opened. The speech of him who hears God's words, who sees what Shaddai sees, who has fallen, yet has open eyes. How lovely are your tents, Jacob, your encampments, Israel. They spread out like valleys, like gardens by the riverside, like succulent aloes planted by Adonai, like cedar trees next to the water. Water will flow from their branches. Their seed will have water aplenty. Their king will be higher than Agag, and his kingdom lifted high. God, who brought them out of Egypt, gives them the strength of a wild ox, they will devour the nations opposing them, break their bones, pierce them with their arrows. When they lay down, lay down, they crouch like a lion or like a lioness. Who dares to rouse them? Blessed be all who bless you. Cursed be all who curse you. Balak blazed with fury against Balaam and he struck his hands together and said to Balaam, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but here you have done nothing but bless them three times already. Now you had better escape to your own place. I had planned to reward you very well, but now Adonai has deprived you of payment. And Balaam answered Balak, didn't I tell the messengers you sent me that even if Balak would give me his palace full of silver and gold, 
I cannot do of my own accord. I can't go beyond the word of Adonai to do either good or bad. That what Adonai said is what I'd say. But now that I'm going back to my own people, come. I will warn you what this people will do to your people and the world to come. So he made his pronouncement. This is the speech of Bilam, son of Beor, and the speech of the man whose eyes have been opened, the speech of him who hears God's words, who knows Elyon, who sees what Shaddai sees, who has fallen, yet has open eyes. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not soon. A star will step forth from Jacob. A scepter will arise from Israel to crush the corners of Moab, destroy all the descendants of Sheth. His enemies will be his possessions. Edom and Seir, possessions. Israel will do valiantly. From Jacob will come someone who will rule, and he will destroy what is left of the city. He saw Amalek and made this pronouncement. First among nations was Amalek, but destruction will be its end. He saw Cainy and made this pronouncement. Though your dwelling is firm, your nest set on a rock, Cain will be wasted while captive to Asher. Finally, he made this pronouncement. Oh no, who can live when God does this? But ships will come from the coast of Kittim to subdue Asher and subdue Eber. But they too will come to destruction. Then Bilam got up, left, returned to his home, and Balak too went his way. Quite a story, isn't it? Well, now I think we can see that the assignment of the title Numbers for this book was a poor one. Because accounting records and census are the least of this book. And I ask you to understand that all the titles that we Christians use for the various books of the Bible are contrived by men in one way or another. Okay. Not that there's anything wrong with that. They're not false. They weren't intended to deceive, nor likely ever intended to be more than just a very simple way to identify a particular group of scriptures. But we must not be so naive, nor so ignorant, as to not know at this point in our Christian walk that there is nothing sacred or God-ordained about Bible book names or chapter divisions, or verse numbers. They were all added well into the future from when the scriptures were written for no other reason than to be a tool to help us study and communicate the word of God. The Hebrews tended to use the first few words of a new book as its title. The Greeks tended to use a word that they thought expressed the overall purpose of the book or is with the New Testament, who it was addressed to or to whom authorship was often ascribed. Now, the story of Balaam and Block has so much more theological depth to it than, than's on the surface. The, the Gentile Christian world mainly remembers this episode because of the talking donkey. 
with the message that if God can't get a man to do his bidding or speak his word, he'll use an animal. And truth be known, that's probably the least of what's being taught here. Now, a reasonable first question to ask about this story, which we won't even get anywhere near done tonight, is, was this an actual event, or is it a Hebrew fable? Now, I know that that question probably instantly bothers some of you that I would even dare to broach such a possibility, so let me answer it in a way that I hope will relieve you. Jesus often taught by means of a literary device scholars call parable. Parables, well, let me ask, were the parables of Jesus true stories of actual happenings? Were there really ten virgins dressed in white clothing carrying their oil lamps at night? What about the wheat and the tares? See, a parable is a truth told using an illustration, a word picture. Yeshua didn't invent the use of a parable. A parable was a standard literary device of that age, and it was invented centuries earlier. The Bible makes liberal use of metaphors as well. And metaphors are often meant to shock Okay. The illustrations don't have to be an actual event, although something similar might have occurred so that the people who were listening got the picture because they could identify with it. Often, parables were so vague that Yeshua's closest disciples thought they were riddles. So if you find it challenging at times... To understand Jesus' parables and need a teacher to explain them to you, don't despair. The very men who Yeshua mentored found many of them to be perplexing. Now, just because a parable is a story designed to embody a godly principle, but was not always the recounting of an actual event, doesn't make it a lie or a fantasy. We're going to find poetic license in the Bible, a lot of it. We're going to find exaggerations, hyperbole, to make a point. The Apostle Paul loved to use exaggeration. We're going to find the recording of men making false statements. King King David made many false statements. We'll see men do terrible things. We'll see men say something, by the way, totally incorrect about God. What they're saying is just not true. This is all part about how the Bible communicates absolute truth and light to us and shows men just how they are. Taking the Bible literally does not mean that we're to take exaggeration as if it weren't, nor metaphor as if it were a direct analogy, nor are we we to take a poem as though it were unemotional historical facts nor are we to take history as though each event had deep spiritual meaning. Very probably, the story of Balak and Balaam is an embellished story based on something that actually happened. A historical event that has been expanded and kind of fabulized. Okay? There may have, there probably actually have been and probably was a seer named Balaam and a king named Balak. Balak might have actually been terribly concerned about this gigantic Israelite tsunami that was coming his way. 
and he wanted divine help to counter it. The main giveaway that it's almost certainly at least part fable is the talking donkey. And secondarily is that the entire story simply appears as a odd detour in the historical recounting of Israel's approach to the promised land. And thirdly, we see that this entire story was an insertion into the book of Numbers from a slightly later date. And that was probably added in pieces. And you're going to see that as we go through this. That said, just like the parables of Christ, what is being taught throughout this story is divine truth. That you can count on. And some of it's even prophetic. Really, there is probably more theological meat condensed in the telling of this story than in any other single place in all scripture. What we have in the story of Balaam and Balak is a Bible within a Bible. A Torah within a Torah. For that reason, we're going to look at it very closely. Now, this theological legend begins with one king, Balak. He's the king of Moab, which was a vassal nation ruled by the Amorites. Balak was worried about all these Israelites who were on his border. It is interesting that we're told that Balak was the son of a fellow named Sipor, because it harkens back to Moses' wife's name, Sipporah. Yes, it's the same name. Sipor is the masculine. Sipporah is the feminine. It means bird. Okay. Now, how is it that Balak's father and Moses' wife would have the same name, especially since that name is found in only one culture, that of the Midianites? That question's pretty well answered for us in verse 7 of uh, chapter 22 because it says that the elders of Moab got together with the elders of Midian to see what they could do about this impending Hebrew problem. In other words, there was a regional alliance being described here between Moab and Midian. And as happens right up to our day in tribal as well as royal societies, intermarriage and the adopting of certain elements of a hope for allies' culture and customs, particularly when it comes to adopting names, is the usual route to cement this kind of an alliance. And as we saw some time ago, Sipporah, Moses' wife, was a Midianite. Sipporah was actually a rather common Bedouin name. So what we can readily see is that Balak, King Balak of Moab's father, had adopted a Midianite name, Sippor, to show favor to his very good ally, Midian. Now the Israelite army had mowed right through the Amorites. So the people of Moab knew they weren't going to be able to stop them by the force of arms, though undoubtedly they were going to try. The solution, what were they going to do? Ah, magic. To enhance the chances. So they sought to hire what must have been well known, um, a very highly regarded magician from up north named Balaam. Now, key to understanding our story is 
that Balaam lived up in Mesopotamia. He was a Gentile. He was a seer, a diviner, a sorcerer. Balaam lived up by the Euphrates River, very near a city called Carchemish. And, and this is an area that is alternately known in the Bible as Aram. Yet in a land full of pagan gods, it's very interesting, in a land full of pagan gods and a fully developed mystery Babylon religious system, for some reason, this Bilam guy knew, perhaps even had adopted, the God of Israel as his own. How or why this happened isn't explained. But let's also remember that Abraham, who was also a Gentile, was from Mesopotamia. And he also rather easily accepted this God. And we get no explanation as to why Abraham didn't seem to have very many qualms about it. Now it is interesting that Balaam's character in this story is alternately painted as evil and then righteous. In some ways, there's even a kind of neutrality or even-handedness regarding his sentiment towards his own culture and the people of Israel. Yet the very fact that he's called a prophet and a diviner and that his sorcery was found to be so impressive and useful for Balak and his government, this attests to the pagan beliefs and rituals that Balaam must have practiced, and the heathen gods that he also included in his own worship. Now, for our purposes, we might as well picture him properly as running around with a little pointy black hat and a magic wand. Okay. However, our story, oddly, puts Balaam in quite a positive light. At the least we see that he certainly knows and respects Yehovah, God of Israel, and is determined to some degree to obey him. But as we're going to see in later chapters and in other books, another side of Balaam is also revealed. In fact, in Numbers 31, when we get there, we're going to find that Balaam was actually killed by the Israelites. And in Deuteronomy 21... We even find the idea that Balaam probably fully intended to curse the Israelites for that rather large sum of money from Balak and his coalition. And only God's intervention stopped him. It wasn't, you see, that Balaam was doing the right thing by blessing instead of cursing. It's that he feared for his life if he went against Jehovah. Now, with all the biblical evidence in hand, we can say with some confidence that Balaam was probably just a hired gun, utterly ambivalent to right and wrong. Whatever he did, he did so to his own benefit, even if that benefit was only self-preservation. So what we have in Balaam is a Gentile who definitely, at least in our story, received inspiration from the Lord God of Israel. Now, this is such a strange thing. I mean, here we have God redeeming and then guiding his now well-established nation of Hebrews, but then Jehovah turns around and communicates with a Gentile prophet who isn't part of his set-apart people. 
Yet there's also no reason to assume that the Lord found special favor with Balaam. There's no reason to consider Balaam holy or righteous before Yehovah, nor that his allegiance was even to the God of Israel. And let me repeat, keep in mind throughout all of our investigation of these chapters, Balaam was a Gentile who was hearing directly from God. Man, we got a lot to untangle here. Now let me take that one step further and we're going to close for tonight. We really don't have to take this incident with Balaam as such a biblical anomaly. That is, this story involving a pagan prophet, what we might commonly call a false prophet, being inspired by God, and for that reason, being able to accurately tell the future in a particular case, isn't unique in the Bible. So hear me. Major principle. The Bible confirms that a false prophet can still be used of God, even be allowed to make an accurate prediction in order for Yehovah to achieve his own purposes. So while correctly foretelling the... Follow this. While correctly foretelling the future, or correctly speaking an inspired message from God, or demonstrating some other legitimately spiritual gift can indicate interaction with the Lord, it doesn't necessarily indicate a right relationship with Yehovah. Nor does the Bible use inspiration as a surefire indicator of the holiness of that person. Deuteronomy 13 tells us that false prophets can at times absolutely accurately see the future. We find examples of this throughout the Bible. Even though King Saul continued to accurately prophesy, he was condemned by God as a bad king that would lose his throne. Caiaphas prophesied about the death of Christ in John 11. Jewish sorcerers cast out demons in Yeshua's name, but they didn't trust him as Savior. The Corinthians, maybe the greatest example in all the Bible of church behavior gone wild, were said to have had many real and validated spiritual experiences, but they came up pretty short on holiness, love, and pretty much any sound doctrine to speak of. This sort of phenomenon was common enough in Christ's era that in Matthew 7, Yeshua warned that in the end times, driving out demons and ecstatic spiritual acts and the performing of miracles would happen and it would be very real. But these acts were not necessarily to be taken as signs proving that the person who did it was guaranteed a place in heaven. Rather, it was only those, we are told, who do the will of my Father. So in both the Old and New Testaments, we have demonstrations and warnings that God's inspiration of a man 
to achieve a purpose is not a certain sign that that man's status is good with Jehovah. This in itself is a very good reason to always be a healthy skeptic. Not of God, but of persons who purport to speak for God. We're going to continue with this fascinating theological story of Balab and Balak next week.